All right, would you join me where we've been for quite a while? Uh, Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. As we do each week, I'm going to do a, a quick review this week. I'm, though I'm going back four weeks for our review, it'll be a very short review. Okay, I just want to kind of set the stage uh, before we read the scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Four weeks ago, we did a three-part sermon. Now, you may not remember that. I wouldn't expect you to remember that. But it, these, this sermon in its three parts came from verses 9 to 18. And in that passage, we spent, again, three weeks looking at seven things the Holy Spirit does for believers. And I wonder, without looking, if you had a piece of paper, those of you that were here for those weeks, if you could say, what does the Holy Spirit do for believers? Let me refresh your memory. We're not going to go back and read verse 9 to 18. But in that, those three messages, here's what we found. The Holy Spirit, this is only for people who put their faith in Christ. Number one, we saw that He indwells us. He indwells us. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives us life. Meaning that He gives us spiritual life in this life. But in the life to come, following the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have physical life. We'll be reunited with these bodies. Number three, we saw that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He's the one who helps us become more like Christ. How does he do that? Number four, he leads us. The Holy Spirit leads, prompts, convicts, teaches. He speaks, he leads. Number five, we spent a week on this one by itself. He seals our adoption as the children of God. So we talked about how we're the children of God. And then the last of that little series was number six and seven, where we found two things falling out from that. The Holy Spirit not only like seals that adoption, but he assures us, and hopefully Christian, you've experienced this, he, the Holy Spirit, lets you know that you really are the child of God. A lot of people may think they are, but he lets his children know they are the children of God. And then also he guarantees our inheritance. So that was a three-week message looking at those eight or nine verses. Last week, we looked at verses 18 to 25, and we saw two groanings. Do you remember that? Uh, I met a couple of people, and two or three different people this week, uh, asking how they're doing, this, that, and the other, and, and multiple of you uh, mentioned kind of groaning. They were talking about physically, I'm groaning, I'm just experiencing this or that. We all do, because what we found in those two passages was the groaning of creation, we're going to reread that one, and the groaning of us as Christians. Christians groan because the whole creation groans, we're not an exception. And you say, Jeff, why did you do that little intro again? Because the seven things the Holy Spirit does, and these two groanings both flow into this week's two verses. So we're only focusing on two verses this week, verse 26 and 27. But I do want to back up and just get the running start again, verse 18 to 27. Again, focus on verse 26 and 27. Would you back up to verse 18 with me? And we'll read. For I consider the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I consider... Be encouraged by this. The sufferings of this present time. Say, Jeff, today is a day of suffering for me. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory will be revealed to us. It's coming. Hang on. Better days ahead. For the creation, planets, stars, animals, insects, birds, fish, the angels, the whole thing, for the creation 
obviously mankind, waits with eager longing. What's happening right now? Creation is stretching its neck up on its tiptoes, as it were. Longing. For what? The revealing of the sons of God. Which ones really are the sons of God? Bring them on. Let's get this thing going, creation says. Why the rush? What's creation's hurry? For the creation, all those things I just mentioned, was subjected to futility, emptiness, frustration, frailty. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We said that was God did this. But why did he do it? God subjected the creation to futility. The Verse 20 finishes, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation's wearing down. It's not getting better. It's not evolving. It's wearing down. But it's going to be free from its corrupt, uh, bondage to corruption. And God subjected it in hope that the creation, back to verse 21, will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we're going to have glory revealed to us and we're going to experience our own level of glory. He summarizes this little section, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, the idea of Christians, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. You said, Jeff, a few weeks ago you told us we're already sons of God. But we're waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're longing for the day of that rapture. I told you last week, even your loved ones who are in heaven, they're far better off than we are, but they do not yet have their body. And they too are longing and waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24 and 25, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen. Hey, it's right there. Hope that's seen, that's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, yes, that's back to verse 23. You say, Jeff, that's what we're hoping for. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The idea of patient, persevering, endurance. We're waiting eagerly, longingly. We're waiting. We're not waiting to die. We're waiting to live. It's going to get way better. Say, Jeff, what about in the meantime? What about like right now in the meantime? We've got all this groaning going on. We're waiting. (laughs) Verse 26. In the meantime, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, capital S, helps us in our weakness. So we had this list of seven things the Spirit does. And we had these two groanings. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So, well, Brother Jeff, I'm actually, I'm kind of a professional prayer. I'm really good at praying. Thank you for your humility. But verse 26, here's what God says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You say, but I pray lots of prayers. Keep praying. But just know that we do not pray We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings. The idea of intense, audible expressions 
Expressions even of anguish, I believe, is the idea. If that groanings of creation, groaning of Christians, here that the Holy Spirit Himself is groaning. Look at the phraseology. But the Spirit Himself, since we don't know how to pray like we should, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Wordless groanings. Well, does that even do any good? <laughs> Yes, verse 27. And he who searches hearts, that's God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Normally it seems like we have three things to look at out of our text. This week I want us to look at four things. Would you notice four things? I'm going to go ahead and tell you I hesitated talking about the first one because you're going to think, oh, we're going to delve deeply into this topic. No, we're not. We're only going to touch it. Quickly, keep moving, but you can't help but notice, number one, the nature of God as a trinity. Did you guys see that? The nature of God as a trinity. Uh, again, we're not delving into this. This would not be a whole sermon. This would be a series of sermons to try to tackle this. I think I was telling uh, Jeff Gilbert this week, like I almost hesitated. I, I literally thought not even touching on this because we're not going to do it justice. But I, I, it's so obvious in the text, we have to hit it. You say, Jeff, okay, what in the world are you talking about? Did you catch it? Look at verse 27. If you've got your Bible open, I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible in, in your lap or on your phone, iPad, whatever you have, try to follow the text today. We're going to see a few different texts. We're only looking at two main verses. But follow along. Let your eyes just glance at verse 27. You already see two aspects there. You see the Spirit is mentioned, capital S, and then you see the will of God. Uh, God the Father is implied there, and the verse starts by saying, He who searches hearts. So you see God the Father, you see God the Holy Spirit in verse 27. Now look down, if you would, verse number 29. It'll not be on the screen, just let your eyes fall there. For those whom he foreknew, he the Father, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see that? So verse 27, we've got the Father, we've got the Spirit. Verse 29, we've got the Son. And so if you're listening to this, I know we've heard lots of things through the years, and most of you are saying, Jeff, this is so obvious, we don't even need this touched on here at Grace View. Hang on. God the Father... God the Son's mentioned. God the Holy Spirit. Some people will hear that and they'll come to this conclusion. So let me get this straight. So there really are three gods. No, there's not three gods. Are there two gods? No, there's not two gods. Are there more than that? No, there's not more than that. So there's only one God. Listen carefully. There is only one God. Only one God. Probably the most important verse to a Jew in the Old Testament would be out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 where the, their Bible tells them, our Bible tells us, listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So if you, I, I almost thought, if you don't hear anything else, hear this point. But I need you to hear the whole point. This is important. Let's get our theology right. The Lord our God is one. He's one Lord. He is not a triad of three gods. He is one God that is a triune, threeness in oneness, unified oneness that involves threeness. And you say, Jeff, you're making absolutely no sense. I'm making no sense because our brains can't handle what I'm saying, but I'm still going to preach it and teach it so that whether we understand it or not, we're just going to let the Bible say what it says. Again, years ago, back in 1988, I learned a little doctrinal statement that I think is solid, so I'm going to share it with you if you want to write it down. God is one God. In fact, Jesus, when he was on earth, emphasized this. 
I and my Father are one. Oh, right, you guys are one like you're on the same page. No, 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 no. We're one in essence. We're one. We're just one. Okay, so there isn't Father, Son, Spirit. Hang on. God is one God, eternally existing. So you say, is is matter eternal? No, matter is not eternal, but God is eternal. God is one God, eternally existing and manifesting himself. We could have repeated the word eternally. Eternally manifesting himself. So you say, was there a time where it was just God the Father and then he made God the Son? And then they eventually decided to develop the Spirit. No. God is one God eternally existing and eternally manifesting himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you say, now which one of them is the strongest? Write this down. Co-equal in all power. Which one of them knows the most? Co-equal in all the attributes. Holiness, self-existence, not relying upon the other. So again, even by me saying that, I realize I'm going to sound contradictory and sound like I'm talking in a cycle. But I just want to say what the scripture says. Here's what I know. There is one God. Only one. Our God is holy. You say, yes, Brother Jeff, he is separate from sin. Absolutely. But point here is, he's holy other. Please get this about your God. You say, so what's the nearest thing to God in this universe? I thought about that. Is it us? Is a Christian the nearest thing? Or would you say, well, no, no. I'd say probably an angel, a holy angel... Maybe Gabriel or, or Michael, surely they're the closest thing. Here's the point. There's nothing like God. If we're the closest thing to God, is God like us? Nothing like us. Is God like Gabriel or Michael? He's nothing like them. God's in his own category. There is one God. Now here comes the tricky part. He is only one. Yet the Bible is clear. There is distinction with each member of the Trinity. There's personhood within each member of the Trinity. The Father and the Son are different, and yet it's one God. The Spirit is distinct. He's a distinct personality. The Bible talks about things that the Holy Spirit is is ascribed personality. The Father has personality. The Son has personality. He's not like anything that we know about. In fact, if we, I'm not going to take the time, but if we were to take the time, we would see that The Father and the Son and the Spirit are all involved in creation. Passages of Scripture make that clear. The Father's involved, the Spirit's involved, the Son's involved. All three are involved in the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God becoming a man. All three are involved in the baptism. You guys remember this. The Son is baptized. The Father says, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. The Spirit descends like a dove. So you say, obviously they're all there. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It'll be on the screen. Here's the idea. So if the blood of bulls and goats and, and sprinkling of ashes helped to sanctify and purify people in the Old Testament, like, you know, temporary, ceremonially cleansing them, verse 14, watch for the Trinity here. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, capital S, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, the idea of God the Father, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we see that the Trinity is involved not only in the, in the death of Christ, but also in the resurrection of Christ. Two weeks ago we had a baptism, right? All ten folks, we took the time to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you're sitting there thinking, Jeff, okay, time out. 
We've been talking about the Son and the Father and the Spirit for chapters. It's been dominant in chapter 5 and 6. The Son was dominant in there. Yes, the Spirit's been so much now in chapter number 8. Why are you just now choosing to emphasize this whole Trinity thing? Why now? Here's why. Because our text today says, God, the Holy Spirit, prays prayers to God the Father. And God the Father receives prayers from the Holy Spirit. Hey, real quick, I don't know if y'all noticed that. Somebody's, uh, Brother Tim, could you check and see whose horn that is? And uh, I don't want anybody's battery going down. And uh, are there really? Okay, we'll check on it. Not a big deal. We'll find out. There may be some, some scooter running around checking for open doors out there. Uh, we just got, we got three big dudes going to check on it, so everything's safe. Four big dudes. We got one more. David's joining. I like our chances. All right. Y'all let us know if you need more big dudes. We've got a few more. Uh, is it stopped? Still going. Okay. We'll get to it. All right. Did y'all catch what I just said? We're getting ready to move on to the other point. Everybody catch that? Do you understand this? The Holy Spirit of God, one God, but the Holy Spirit of God prays prayers to God the Father. And God the Father receives prayers from God the Holy Spirit. You say, Jeff, is that kind of like the husband in you talks to the pastor in you? Is that kind of like you, the employer, talk to you, the employee of Graceview? No. Well, what's it like? I can't explain it. God's a trinity. He's one God, but there's three distinct persons, each with their own personality. And I'm just going to take the Bible for what it says. Number two, what do we notice in our text today? So back in Romans 8, here's what we notice. Can't miss it. There's this knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? At least three things are mentioned. First of all, there's this knowledge of God, according to verse 27. And he who searches hearts, God knows our hearts. Taste that. Listen to it. Hear it. God knows our hearts. In fact, the Bible says God searches hearts. Why? Because God is most concerned with the heart. God is most concerned with your heart. I'm thinking of the Old Testament. The people chose Saul. I'm assuming he was somewhere around seven feet tall because apparently he was head and shoulders above everyone. Handsome fellow, looked really good, had a lot of gifting, great warrior. He's the king. And they gave it a shot, but God said, I'm rejecting him as king. Why? He doesn't have the heart for it. And watch this. God says, I'm going to accept David. Why? Because David has the heart I'm looking for. Now, I'm going to think humanly. I have a message that I've preached on this before. Humanly speaking, I've got to tell you, Saul's sins do not look quite as bad as David's sins. Saul had two or three big errors. David had two or three huge errors. And God says, I'm not excusing those things, but David's heart is so much better than Saul's heart. Would you go with me, Acts chapter 1? I want to just show you one quick thing. We won't spend long here. Acts chapter 1, talking about how God searches the hearts. Talking about the knowledge of God. He knows hearts. So while you're turning to Acts 1, in a moment you're going to see verse 23 on the screen. But before that, what's happening? They're in the upper room. The Lord has ascended. There's 120 people. There's 11 disciples, 11 apostles at this point. Obviously, they're without Judas. 
Peter stands up and says, listen, we need to do something about replacing Judas's spot among the twelve because the twelve apostles are going to rule and reign. They're going to have thrones over the twelve tribes of Israel in the future kingdom. So somebody has to fill this twelfth spot. And I know a lot of people wonder, so I guess the apostle Paul is the twelfth apostle. No, he's not. So as they get ready to choose, these were the qualifications. It has to be, so Peter says, it's got to be someone who was there when Jesus was baptized and has had a part of his ministry all the way to when he died on the cross, was resurrected, so they have to have seen him after the resurrection and the ascension. Who meets those qualifications? So as they search the room, two men fit the category. Watch verse 23. And they put forward two. I don't understand this. This guy's got three names, so pick, pick one. So here they put forth two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who, also, who was also called Justice. Let's call him Justice, all right? So Justice is put forth and Matthias. And they prayed. Here's the thing. Both guys equally qualified. So here it's going to be one of you two guys. We don't know which one it's going to be. So what do they do? And they prayed and said, quote, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. Remember, Pentecost had not happened. The Holy Spirit had not filled them. Casting lots was used in the Old Testament. And God seemed to honor it. And we believe that God controlled the casting of the lots. You say, what in the world is that? Apparently they would take a cup or a bowl or something, put stones inside of it, mark one with justice, mark one with Matthias, shake it up, roll it out, kind of like you're playing Yahtzee. And the one apparently that come out first, that's the one. You're like, you're kidding me. The twelfth apostle was decided on a crapshoot. They're like, but they preceded it with prayer. Watch the prayer. Lord, it's equal with us. Since you know their hearts, and Lord, no offense to the one that's not chosen, would you please? And they roll the dice, and it comes out Matthias. And Matthias is the 12th apostle. I've heard some debate that. He's not really mentioned afterward. Is that a sign? Well, hardly any of the rest of them are mentioned after Acts chapter 1 either. So he becomes. Will y'all accept one little quick preaching point? Do you accept it and receive it? Here it comes. I'm not going to say it loudly. I just want you to taste it. Since God knows people's hearts, we would do well to seek His will, like learn what God sounds like, and actually take the steps. Young people, listen. When you're getting ready to decide who's going to be your marriage partner, you better say, now Lord, since you know the hearts, is this the one you want me to marry? And maybe you need to get five die and... Joe and Steve and Robert and... No, no, I'm kidding. Don't do that. But as you're honestly contemplating a person, Lord, since you know the hearts, hey, you're getting ready to choose a business partner, you better ask God. You're getting ready to have a church appointment like we're looking for. I'm right here, right now. Lord, since you know the hearts, I don't. You say, well, I actually know them really well. Maybe you do. God knows them perfectly better than they know themselves. Lord, would you please show us your will in this? Second thing, as we go back to Romans, that we see about this knowledge of God. What is God's knowledge in verse 26 and 27? We see that God knows the mind of the Spirit. See verse 27? And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So he knows hearts, he searches and knows our hearts, he knows the mind of the Spirit. It won't be up yet, but if you want to take the first line of your next note, here it comes, you ready? Words are certainly important 
Words certainly matter in our prayers. Please, those of you been here on Wednesday nights for the last three months over at the Student Connection when we do our midweek connection, you know, he believes in that. He's been hammering away for us. We need to have more spiritual prayers and we need to have specific prayers. I've been buying for this. More spiritual prayers, more specific. What if we stop doing this and Lord be with so and so. And Lord bless such and such activity. What if we started saying, now hold on, and the Lord says, okay, what does be with mean? Be with so and so. You know, be with. I'm already with them. Oh. Lord, would you manifest your presence in a way that accomplishes this? This is my desire. Now, the whole time we're yielding to God's will. We're going to talk about that. But very specific. You put it into words. Name what you're actually asking God to do. Now, finish the next line. Words certainly are important and matter in our prayers, but even more important than our words is our heart. More important. I'm telling you, the words are important. I'm not downplaying that. But we can have perfect wording. But more important than our words is our heart. If I could word it this way. The content and the container. You can have the best food, but put on a nasty container. You don't want it. As I prepared this week, my preparation involved not just the message, but the messenger. told some folks Wednesday night, I've kind of been going, starting reading very slowly through 1 Timothy. and, And Paul just keeps hitting this to young Timothy, who's supposed to... Teach this to the elders, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the teaching elder here, right? The pastor. I'm not just to prepare messages. What about me, the container? So we got the, we got the content, and we have the container. Our prayers, our words are important, but even more than that is the container that it's coming from. How about my passion? How about my purpose of my prayers? Now to finish that note you started... Words certainly matter in our prayers, but even more important than our words is our heart. The Holy Spirit communicates to God the Father in a perfect manner without needing words. Doesn't need words. Wordless groanings, wordless prayers. Figure that one out. God, talking to God, doesn't use words. Groanings. Think about why. You say, why? Jeff, why? Why no words? What are words? My pastor taught me, think of it this way. Words are vehicles. Vehicles carry cargo. Car, oh. Vehicles carry cargo. Words are little vehicle. So when we choose words and we string them in a certain order, we're putting our heart, the expression of our heart, in these words because we're not at one with each other and you have no idea what's in my head and in my heart. And so for you to feel and think what I want you to feel and think that's in my heart, I have to use words. God the Father doesn't need words from the Spirit because He knows the Spirit is praying for God's will to be done in our life. It's just groanings. They have a whole communication that is totally wordless. Words are important for us. God the Father and Holy Spirit do not need words. Third thing, would you write this down? The Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, God the Father's knowledge is, He knows His own will. God knows His own will. Absolutely knows His own will. And so with that thought in mind, someone may say, all right, Jeff, what is God's will? Could I say it this way? What is God's overarching? What's the big things? Would you look down at verse 28 and 29? You're very close to it. Our text has us close to one of the things. I'm going to offer two things to you this morning that I know is God's will. Verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. You're going to want to note that word. It's kind of the first thing here. God's purpose. I'm going to tell you God's will is directly tied to His purpose. And His purpose is very clearly stated in the next verse. Those who are called according to His purpose. That's who everything's working out for their good. Those called according to His purpose. What's His purpose? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Here comes the purpose. His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now very quickly, here's what I'm going to do. If I take those two verses, 28 and 29, couple it with Ephesians 1 and several other passages like it, here's what I conclude. I'm going to give you two things I know is God's will and His will is attached to these two stated known purposes. Number one, this would be more from Ephesians. You say, what's the will of God? Here it is, very simple, you've heard it before. God's will, God's purpose is that God's glory be made known and celebrated. God wants His glory to be made known, make my glory known, and I want my glory to be celebrated. And the second thing we read there in Romans 8, I know this is God's purpose and God's purpose, His will is attached to this purpose. Here it is, number two. God's eternal Son to be the firstborn over many brethren who will be like Him. Did you catch that? Say, what is God's purpose? What is God's will? That His glory be made known and celebrated and that God, the eternal Son, will be the firstborn, the arch, not first in time, not chronologically, but the highest ranking one over all His sons and daughters of God. So the only Son of God by nature ranking over many other children of God. I know that's the purpose of God. And that's His will. And so I'm saying that for this reason. Listen, nothing else is guaranteed. You say, right, me being comfortable, me being earthly happy, me having pleasure, me having money, me having new things, none of those things are guaranteed. We can ask for them, we can pray for them, and he gives us so many things. We're extremely blessed in the United States. Far more than most every other place in the world. Can I use an analogy? Think of this. Picture a large construction site. Got it? Large construction. Yeah, okay, three, four acres. No, no, no. Large, 25-acre construction site. Let's say 120, 130 workers. Picture it. Over here, somebody's welding. Over here, somebody with a crane. Over there, somebody with a shovel and rakes, and they're planting plants and, and putting out mulch. Over here, some guys with uh, uh, saws and hammers and things like that. Over here, some dudes installing utilities underground. They've got a, a, the track hoe, and they have the dump truck. You got it? Big site, many, many workers. Here's what I've noticed. Each individual worker, the guy welding, the crane operator, the guy over here with his drill, the guy over here planting a plant. I've been on those job sites. There's usually grumbling and complaining. Here's why. Individually, they never know why things are done a certain way in a certain order. Why is that being done? Because everyone's looking through. The guy, honestly, that's over here putting in the plant, the most important thing going on the whole job site is what I'm doing. And the crane operator's up there thinking... Why are these people even doing here? they got to know, man, it's, it's important what I'm doing. Over here's the concrete guy saying, no, 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 they all need to shut down. We only have a few minutes before this concrete sets up. we got to work this. Doesn't everybody know what we're doing is the most important thing? You say, Jeff, that's a great little story. What does that have to do with anything? As individual Christians, none of us see the grand design of what God's doing. 
And we all think the most important thing is our life. What's happening with me? God, hold everything. I'm experiencing some pain. Oh! Could be part of the plan. The Trinity knows the plan of God. God's like, I know my will. The Spirit knows my will. The Son knows my will. We pray to that end. We operate to that end. Everything is moving in that direction. You say, what's that direction? That God's glory will be known and then celebrated and that His Son will be the firstborn over many brethren. And nothing outside of that's guaranteed. Number three. What else do we see in our text? We see the weakness of man. Can't miss it. The weakness of man. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know. Hey, can we face something very quickly here? We are weak. Wasn't that the whole point of last week's passages, this groaning and this groaning? We're weak physically, we're weak spiritually. You say, Jeff, why do we pray the way that we do? I'm going to tell you, it's because we're weak physically, we're weak spiritually. That's why we pray the way we do. And this is so important because I'm going to say a statement and I'm going to qualify it. Prayer, I honestly, this is my opinion, you may disagree, I believe prayer is the hardest part of the Christian life. You say, so it's like the most, you know, it's the worst part. No, it's a great part. By this, I don't mean torturous. I mean, it's just difficult. Why? Because we're weak physically, we're weak spiritually. I actually used to honestly think people in the hospital had a lot of time to catch their prayer life up. And then I started visiting the hospital several years ago, and it dawned on me, one, there's interruptions. Two, the body says, just don't feel like it. The spirit is down and depleted. Not a place to go to catch up. If you could catch up on your prayer life up there, you are really doing something. Either that or God is really putting the clamps down on you. We're weak. We're weak spiritually. And prayer is the most difficult part of the Christian life. Why? This is what I struggle with. Prayer requires a lot of energy. And I'm not talking about external sweating and movement. I'm talking about focus. A lot of concentration. And I can never do it on my own. It is only when the Holy Spirit comes beside me and helps me. In fact, I'm indifferent to prayer. It's only when He makes me care to pray and energizes me in prayer and helps me believe. Only then do I actually have a chance to pray. Because we're so weak. Would you hold your spot here? Look with me over at Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Touch this. Luke 22. Again, if you have it on your phone, I want you to follow here because I'm going to expand just a little beyond. I'm not necessarily reading verses, but referring to some verses around this. This is important. Talking about the weakness of man. So we've seen God, the nature of God as a trinity. We've seen the knowledge of God in all these three areas. And then we see our weakness. So how weak are we? Is this true or not? We are so spiritually fragile at any moment we're very susceptible to fall into sin. I mean, within five seconds. Have you ever noticed that? There's some of you right now, your heart can be totally fine, but if a certain person walked in the side door and you just caught a glimpse, immediately your spirit would be grieved. And I don't like them. What are they doing here? It's like, we are susceptible. Any moment, something pops up, and all of a sudden our brain starts thinking wrong, sinful thoughts. That's how weak we are. Quick scene here. What's going on in Luke 22? They've just had the Lord's Supper. Jesus is going to be dying in in just the next morning. So he's instituted uh, the Passover meal. He's changed it to the Lord's Supper. So again, get the scene. He's serving. Do y'all know? Here's how weak we are. Catch this. Watch this. 
at the final, at the Lord's Last Supper, the first communion service, what breaks out? A big discussion over who's the greatest. So they're thinking the kingdom surely any time now, the kingdom's coming, I think it's me, and oh, I think it's me, and I'm sure there were some guys that weren't vying for themselves. I think it's him. I think that guy's number one. Well, I think it's me. All in favor. And they're over here getting this real big discussion. And Jesus, again, won't be on the screen. Listen to verse 27. Jesus asks a great question. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Picture it, you're at the restaurant. Who's greater in that scenario? Somebody that's sitting, eating the food, or the one who's serving the food? Who's the greater? This hit me yesterday. In fact, a little note in my ESV Bible here really helped me out. I had not noticed this before. Look down at verse 31. Look down at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I had never realized this, but, but the experts on the text tell us that the word you and your, that idea in verse 31 is plural, but in verse 32, it's four times used. It's always singular. Let that sink in. That's, that affects the text. So I'm going back, I'm trying to get the context. I'm only going to use verse 31 and 32 today, and now I am now like three minutes in on a little rabbit trail. So I want to read the context, got to back up, and what's going on? Okay, Last Supper, Jesus serving them. They break out who's the greatest. Jesus corrects them and says, oh yeah, in the world system, the kings seem like the greatest, but I'm telling you, it's not the one who's sitting at the table being served, it's the one who's serving that's the greatest in my kingdom, because didn't I just serve you guys? And then he's going to wash their feet. John's going to record that. Didn't I just serve you? And so it hit me yesterday, and all of this wondering, which one of the 12 really is the greatest? I think I figured it out, and I'm probably the last one to the party. And it's not because he's always listed first in the list of the apostles. I believe Peter is the greatest of this 12. You say, based on what? Watch verse, remember, the greatest serve. The greatest, change the way of your thinking. In the worldly system, the greatest get served. I'm telling you, the greatest are the ones who serve. Watch verse 31, let's read it how it was written. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded, have you all? The devil wants to have all of you guys. That he might sift you all like wheat. Guys, listen. The devil has asked for permission. He wants to rattle you boys tonight. He wants to crush you. He wants to destroy your faith tonight. You're all going to run. He wants all of you. Watch verse 32. (laughs) But I have prayed for you, Simon. He wants all of you. But Simon, I prayed for you, buddy. Verse 32. I prayed for you, Jesus gets his prayers answered, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, you're going to leave me tonight. You're going to deny me. No, I won't, Lord. I'm trustworthy. You're going to leave me. You're going to deny me, I promise. But I've prayed for you. He wants to crush you guys. But Jesus says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Serve them. Serve them. Unspoken. Because you're the greatest. Why am I the greatest? Because you're the servant. You're not up here. You're down here. Hey, if you walked in today with a restaurant mentality. So what's a restaurant mentality? Here's restaurant mentality. Come in. You go to the restaurant. And you kind of have it in the back of your mind, number one, what are all these other people doing in my restaurant? Why am I having to wait? 
right? Did they not get the memo? I was coming. Whole world revolves around us, right? The welder thinks he's the most important. The guy on the crane thinks he's the most important. I, at the restaurant, think I'm the most important, right? Get out of my way. Can we be moved to the front? How about a Washington? One dollar. I don't think so. <laughs> you got to wait like everybody else. All right. What's the restaurant mentality? Hey, there's a lot of restaurants in town. I could have went to any one of them, but I graced you with my presence. Those guys in the back better do a good job, and you better do a good job, or I'm going to be upset. Do you know in Anderson County, there's Christians who went to the house of God today, and they literally walked in with this attitude. They're going to go in. What are y'all doing for me? Who's going to come up and talk to me? Who's going to shake my hand? They literally make a note if someone doesn't talk to them or shake their hand. And they make a mental note. It's not a pet peeve, honest. The preacher did not. Oh, boy. And the pressure's on. Why? Restaurant mentality. I'm just trying to preach the Bible here. You know what Jesus is implying? That's the spiritual babies. The greatest are those of you that walked in here today. Who can I serve? I want to be used, God. If nothing, if no one speaks to me, I want to reach out. Use me to encourage somebody. What are you? Peter's the greatest because Peter was the bottom serving everyone else. Back to Romans. We see this weakness of man. How weak was it? The best among them would fail Jesus that night. All of the 12 disciples, of course Judas betrays, but even the other 11, they have no idea that danger, spiritual danger is lurking right there. Please listen to what I'm about to say. This is our weakness. We can be totally unaware that spiritual danger is near and that spiritual needs exist. I'm telling you, here's one you got to watch. You get a text, we read our text real sweetly and we read other people's text real with tone. And ah, ah, ah. Do you know what's happening? They're being mean. Ooh, how are you taking that? You're right. I have a problem with them. I'm telling you, we're so weak, we're so fragile, we have no clue the spiritual warfare that's going on all around us. And they failed that night. The best of them failed. So as we're back in Romans 8, the best in this room, I don't know who you are, the best person who prays the best, you don't pray very good prayers. So why do you say that, Jeff? Because the best guy that I know, outside of the Lord himself, he blew it when it came to praying. So who's that? The man who wrote Romans. Write these down. Listen to these advantages Paul has. Paul struggles with prayer and yet he has huge advantages. He's personally tutored by Jesus for three years. The man wrote 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament. I'm not saying he wrote volume-wise half of it, but I'm saying numerically the number of books, half of the New Testament. This is a man who prayed far more spiritual prayers than we do. Just read Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Thessalonians. Read his prayers like, man, I don't pray that way. Here's a man who had seen the third heaven. Let that sink in. This makes me very nervous about my prayers when I realize that Paul, even Paul, didn't really know how to pray. Would you go to 2 Corinthians 12? It'll be the last text I'm going to have you turn to. 2 Corinthians 12, obviously outside of Romans 8, we'll end up back there. 2 Corinthians 12 Paul is having to defend his discipleship. He started this church in Corinthians, and yet there's false teachers come in trying to undermine him. A few weeks ago, when we hit verse 17 and 18, um, we found that Paul was defending his apostleship by saying, look at all the ways, I hate to do this, man, I hate bragging, it's coming across the wrong way. But 
I am the true apostle of God. Look at all the things I've suffered for the cause of Christ. Now watch chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to his heart and what he says. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it. He's embarrassed by having to do this. Unfortunately, the Corinthians, while he was away, started believing the false teachers. And Paul's not so much defending himself, but he knows if you deny my apostleship, you're going to deny my doctrine. And the main thing, you need the doctrine, so please don't cast me out as a false teacher. They're the false teachers. So to do this, to defend himself, verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions. So we've talked about my suffering, we've talked about my service. Now let's talk about my visions and revelations of the Lord. And to pull this off, he actually steps outside of himself and he talks in third person. This is, this is strange, verse 2. Paul says, okay, let's do it this way. I know a man, uh, me, uh, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 14 years ago, why are you saying that? Because you don't forget something like what he's getting ready to say. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Not the atmosphere, not space, I mean where God lives. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. I saw things, I'm sorry, he, this man I'm talking about, he is me, he saw things, he heard things, verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. What I'm telling you is the truth. This really happened. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Here it comes, verse 7. So he saw these great revelations. Nobody else saw that. Only him. Later on, John will see a vision similar. Verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. This is an important text for somebody here today. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Some have said, what is this thorn? Is it a psychological, emotional, chronic struggle? Some of you know what that means. Is it really literal? He says, thorn in the flesh. It's some physical condition. Paul feels this pain. I mean, it's just beating him down. It's restricting his ability to minister. Maybe if it's just an emotional, psychological thing, it's restricting his ability to minister, he thinks. Others take it as very literal. It's a human. There were human beings that God allowed to oppress him nonstop. Or some say, because messenger of Satan... A demonic force or forces were allowed to get through and harass him and beat him down. Why? Because he's seen these visions. It's allowed to happen to keep him humble. So watch verse 8. He does exactly what you and I do. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's conclusion after all that episode, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Can I translate? Ready? Translation? Whether it be psychological, physical, human oppression, demonic oppression, here's the bottom line. Paul, God, we got to talk. I know what's best here. I will serve you better if you will remove this thing. Uh, No. 
Next time. God, I know we talked earlier. Apparently, you need to be brought up to speed. I would be much more effective. If you will remove this, God, please remove it. No. Three times. No. That makes me nervous. Because if a man who saw the third heaven, wrote half of the books of the New Testament, personally tutored by Jesus, and prays prayers like that, doesn't get it, he misses the will of God, when he prays, how much more do I miss the will of God when I pray? It's scary. Back to Romans. What's our issue? I think our main problem is that we just do not default to God's will as a priority. We don't default God's will. Think about it. Some of you, uh, not being mean, but you need to really start a prayer life. Others of you that have a prayer life, I want to challenge you. How is your prayer life? You say, Jeff, this is convicting. Man, if Paul missed it because he was praying to kind of get some relief in his life, I sure miss it. Here's why we do that. Because we don't default to God's will as our main priority. Do you find this convicting, this statement? Here's what I find. Most, most Christians have a core view. Here it is. God is there for me rather than I am here for God. Taste that. Most Christians, oh yeah, God, He's there for me. He's there to fulfill my desires rather than I'm here for Him. And you know where it shows up the most? It shows up in the prayer closet. That's where that philosophy, God, you're there for me, right? So we take that philosophy to the prayer closet and we jump track of what really matters. We don't pray according to God's will. Check yourself, check yourself. Be honest. When's the last time if God were to give you one or two or three special prayer requests and said, I'm going to answer it, would you use it for this? Lord, I want to pray a Bible prayer here. Would you give me wisdom? That's how you're going to use it? You said you're going to answer it, right? Yeah, will you give me wisdom? You ever pray this? God, would you please give me love? Give me more love for you, more love for Jesus, more love for the Spirit, more love for the Word, more love for souls, more love for the lost, more love for the church. I want to use my own love. Or would you say this? God, I want to be fruitful. Lord, I want to be spiritually powerful. We don't default there. If you're kind of like me, here's what happens to us. We tend to pray for quick release from struggle. Because we have this assumption that surely delivery from trial, that's God's will. God, you want me released from this, right? So I'm going to ask you to deliver me and release me from trial. Can I tell you this? Thankfully, God loves us and is wise enough not to answer those requests. McLean writes the following. You ever heard of the great saint Augustine? Have you ever heard of Augustine? I think he lived in the 300s or the 400s. Strongly affected some of the great theologians in the 1500s. Augustine was a very wicked man in his youth. So let's go back to his youth. Augustine was greatly loved by his mother, Monica, though. McLean writes the following. He says, Monica, his mother, was a Christian and had a heavy burden on her, uh, for her son to be saved. And so what does she do? She prays for him. But then, get this, she learned that her son was leaving home and going to Italy. No! So she prays, God, do not let him go to Italy because she feared he would get into worse sin if he goes away from home and me and he goes to Italy. Please don't let him go. And so she's praying. And McLean says, that was her special request. But God didn't answer. Augustine went to Italy and got converted to Jesus. His mother didn't know how to pray as she ought. 
So God did not answer her special request in order that he might answer her lifelong request. Whatever you do, God, don't let him go to Italy. Not answering that one. I've got plans in Italy. Would you write this down? Number four. The groaning of the Spirit. Verse 26 in the middle. For we do not know how to uh, know. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Two final thoughts for you this morning is this. When the Spirit prays for us, his prayers are very helpful. The Spirit's prayers are helpful. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Watch. Two things are happening in this text. Please, if your mind is starting to drift, dial in, this is important. Two things are said. The Holy Spirit of God prays prayers for us we cannot pray. Wordless prayers. I believe the text is saying the Holy Spirit prays separate from us, prays for us. Wordless prayers, prayers we can't pray. But the second thing he does, he helps. The word helps means to come along beside someone. He's our paraclete. He's our comforter. He's our helper. That's too heavy for you. So let me come and help you carry that. Help you how? Help you carry the load in prayer. Help you in your Christian service. Help you in your battle against sin. Let me help come help you because you're not doing it. So two things happen here. His prayers are helpful because he prays separately on his own and he comes and aids and assists our prayers. And the last thing about his prayers I want you to notice, and I'm not going to, descri- uh, I'm not going to explain it as much as illustrate. The Holy Spirit's prayers are always aligned with God's will. Roll back 14 months ago, we came, 14 and a half months ago, my family and I came to Graceview. Can I just tell y'all something? In the years previous to that, and I think I'm safe in saying this, if we were to go back to 2013, possibly even 2012, definitely 2013, for three or four years, I mean this, I was praying on a regular basis, Lord, where do you want me to serve you? I just felt like something was needing done. I was regularly praying. You say, well, weren't you serving somewhere? Yes. But I was regularly praying, Lord. And over the course of the next few years, I ended up praying more specifically. Sometimes I prayed literally about the church I was at because that looked like a possibility to have a greater level of service there. And at one point, one point, a little window of time, it even looked like a probability. So I was praying about that. And there was a section of about six months, I was praying about a church in Chattanooga. I'm praying about the church I was at. Praying about a church in Chattanooga. Other times I'm backing up and saying, Lord, is it somewhere else? Are we supposed to be in another part of the world? Are we supposed to be in another part of the country? Are we supposed to be in another part of South Carolina? Are we supposed to be in another part of Anderson here? And at one point I'm even praying, like literally just months before, at one point I'm even praying, Lord, do I need to start something? So the church I'm at, Chattanooga, anywhere, everywhere else, oh, maybe start something. Lord, watch you. Listen to me. There's one place I wasn't praying about. I only went by literally, literally over 10,000 times. Because where I lived took me by there over the period of 13 years over 10,000 times. Not on my radar. I'm praying about that and that and that and that. And the Holy Spirit's praying about grace for you. You just got to hold up. Yeah, but Lord, we got some frustrations. We need to do this. And God's like, no and no. But it's down to the final two. Chattanooga. Oh, it looks like even six and six with the committee. What's the tiebreak system? The no. Oh, okay. 
Because the Holy Spirit's praying about something else. So I finish with two facts, two questions, two actions. I promise this will be fast. Two facts. God knows everything and you don't. Fact number two. Fact number two. The Holy Spirit's prayers for God's will in your life are to help you and not to hurt you. Everybody got That's the two facts. God knows everything. You don't. The Holy Spirit, when he prays for God's will to be done in your life, it's to help you, not to hurt you. Two questions. What area of your life do you need to admit to God, I don't know your will? Is it about a job? Is it about school? Is it about a hire? Is it about what to do about a physical condition? I don't know. What's your, what, what's your will? When I said I was praying about all those churches, most days I was surrendered. Just being honest. Most days I was surrendered. No answers. Is it about how to deal with an emotional pain? Is it about dating? Is it about a ministry decision? Is it about financial decision? What area do you need to admit? God, you know everything. I don't. Spirit prays for God's will to help me, not to hurt me. Here's an area. I, I, don't just sit there and listen. Do the exercise. What's an area in your life? You're like, I don't know God's will in this area right now. Second question. Will you receive God's will and give thanks for it when it comes? Y'all have heard Deanna and I. We're at our favorite ministry stop. And by God's grace, I'm not a prophet. If things keep going like, just you, you, you people are so good. We'd love to just, I don't want to say die here because you'll fire me before, before that. If the Lord will get me to retirement age here, that'd be awesome. We, we just, we love it. Well, yeah, Jeff, if it works out like that and a good thing and it's all washed out and, and it's fun, enjoyable like you're saying with yours, of course we'll give that. What if it's painful? Or what if it's just kind of spinning and it's just wait? When it comes, you're going to receive it? The two action steps are this. Keep praying. Keep praying. He prays separate, but I'm telling you, where he really helps you is when you're praying and he comes along beside you and helps you pray. That's when you get victory over sin. That's when your service bumps up. God, I just don't feel it today. God, I can't do this. That's all right. I got it. You cover the light in, and I'll carry the heavy in. I don't think I gave you the note. We have a part in prayer, but God's part's a lot bigger than our part. And my last action step is this. It's the simplest one, but hear it and believe it. Be encouraged that when God, Christian, hear this, be encouraged when God doesn't answer your prayers when you want or the way you want, it's because He loves you and He's wise and He has a greater purpose. You say, what's the greater purpose? That's what we're going into next week. Verse 28, would you stand? Whenever worship team come, they'll sing, not even extending an offering to you. I just gave you the action steps. Keep praying. And be encouraged that when God doesn't answer your request when or exactly how, it's because He loves you, He's wiser than us, and He has a great purpose. It's all going somewhere. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Romans eight twenty six and 27, that while I was up here trying to talk, the Holy Spirit was cleaning up the mess that I was making. And then, Lord... The questions we have, Lord, right now somewhere in this building, there's a Christian that's going to acknowledge that they do not know your will. Lord, we're just, we're just it's not in the know. We don't default to your will. Lord, we default to comfort and pleasure and we want our things done. And Lord, we could almost be like Paul. I promise, we'll not get conceited. We'll be good. 
But you know that we need something we're going through. Help us to trust your heart because you know our heart. Let us be encouraged. Let us keep praying. Let us keep inviting you into our walk and service.